The lasting hope of the people of Israel was the birth of a king in the line of David who would lead the people and know and follow God's law. Who would lead them in righteousness is another way of saying that. Who would lead them in faithfulness. Who'd be victorious over the Gentile nations, over Israel's enemies. Who would restore the autonomy of Israel. Who would once again bring peace to Jerusalem. And who would walk with God. And these hopes and maybe others were bound up in Israel's longing for a Messiah. Messiah is the English, there's another Hebrew word today. But Messiah is the English form of the Hebrew word Mashiach. So Mashiach, which means anointed. Messiah is a way of speaking of any king in Israel. All kings in Israel were anointed. Therefore, in Hebrew, all kings were God's messiahs. David, for instance, used that language of King Saul. So in 1 Samuel chapter 24, 24, verse 6, we have these words. He, David, said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, which in Hebrew is the Lord's Mashiach, the Lord's Messiah, to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. So in the original Hebrew, David twice called Saul the Lord's Messiah. All kings chosen by God in the First Testament carried this title in Israel. So when the word Messiah then was translated into Greek in the New Testament, it was translated as Christos, or Christ. So Christ. I I once taught a, a membership class in a previous denomination, and I was teaching about Jesus, and this guy raised his hand, and he said, is anybody else here just find out that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name? <laughs> it's not his last name. It's a title. Yeah, his last name was Bar-Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph. Right. So Israel was hoping for a king in the line of David who would bring godliness back to Israel. And God's fulfillment of this hope is the promise with which Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 was largely concerned. For Isaiah, in the same time, and you'll have to remember our discussion last week, in the same time that God determined to reveal a great light among those living in darkness, he would also reveal and fulfill Israel's hope for a godly king in the line of David. The two would go together. And as we discussed last week, this promise of God was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus in the small Judean town of Bethlehem, sometime between 6 and 4 B.C., It's when he was born on our calendars. The great light was the message, first of John the Baptist and then of Jesus. And it was this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the great light, that teaching. And the child is Jesus himself. Now in today's discussion, I want to explore what it means for Jesus to have fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah. And to address that, we're going to have to pay careful attention to the terms that Isaiah has used to describe the child that would be born. So to begin, Isaiah first prophesied in the language of the New American Standard Bible that the government would rest on his shoulders. More literally, the original Hebrew says that the rule or the dominion would be placed upon his shoulders, almost like a, a yoke is placed on oxen. So first, Isaiah's prophesied king king would rule absolutely. Isaiah did not prophesy that this leader would be elected by a majority vote. 
Isaiah did not say that the leader would slowly raise through the ranks and once he had enough experience and wisdom, he would eventually attain the position of king or president or prime minister or whatever else. In Isaiah's words, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. A child, a youth, will be born and given to us. A child with authority resting on his shoulders. At the end of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, Isaiah will also say that the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This child's anointing and authority will not proceed from humans, nor from personal achievement, and he'll carry these things from birth. That's what Isaiah was saying. So what does it mean for Jesus to have fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah? In part, it means that Jesus was chosen by God to rule the nations of the earth from birth. Even more, the authority to rule rests on his shoulders alone. The authority to rule does not rest in a nation of the earth over which Jesus will rule. That's not how it works. The authority to rule does not resist in a written set of laws or a written code of conduct or some sort of set of constitutional claims which Jesus would then embrace and support. That's not how it works. The authority to rule rests on his shoulders alone. He doesn't lead the government. Jesus is the government. At least that's what Isaiah was saying. And the New Testament Christians summarized this conviction with the oft-repeated declaration, Jesus is Lord. That's what they meant to say. Jesus is Lord. Now, what does this mean for you and for me? Well, at least one implication is worth considering. For all those who wish to be citizens of the kingdom of Jesus, they will have to forsake all other loyalties. He must have the government of your life and mine and all nations of the earth resting on his shoulders alone. If Jesus is Lord, then Jesus is the government. If the rule and the dominion rest on his shoulders alone, then we must forsake all other loyalties if we are to say earnestly that Jesus is Lord. The ancient Jewish people related to God through their loyalty to a written set of agreements, to the covenant of Sinai, as we call it. All who wish to become citizens of the kingdom of God must swear loyalty not to a written covenant or to a constitution or to a set of legal statutes. All who wish to become citizens of the kingdom of God must swear loyalty to a person, to Jesus, to our Messiah, to our Christ. And Jesus declared this responsibility of those who would want to follow him in various ways throughout his earthly ministry. I'm sure you can think of several passages. But perhaps the clearest call to this type of absolute allegiance can be found in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. This is what we find there. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this person began to build, but was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000? Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. This teaching of Jesus may seem harsh, and it, I suppose it is, but it's also entirely consistent with God's prophecy through Isaiah about him. Jesus will accept any who would follow him. Jesus does not discriminate. He offers all to become part of his kingdom. Wherever in the world they're born, whatever in the world they've done, whoever in the world they are, whatever limitations or gifts they have, he welcomes all to become part of his kingdom. But he does not invite any to follow him who would not allow the rule to rest on his shoulders. All other loyalties must be sacrificed. There is no dual citizenship in the kingdom of God. Jesus is either Lord or he is not. If one wishes to remain loyal to parents or to spouses or to children or to relatives, or did you notice Jesus' language, who even want to preserve their own lives, who are worried about living and surviving, then we're not ready to follow him. So Jesus encouraged his disciples to decide if they were ready to make that kind of an absolute commitment. I just noticed how different Jesus is, right? Today, we don't tell anybody any of that. We just tell them how great it'll all be, and we bring them in, and then we hit them with the hard stuff later, right? But Jesus is right up front with it, right? Nobody would build a tower unless they were sure they had the money and materials to finish it. No one would go to war unless they were sure they had the army and the strength to defeat it, and no one should follow me unless they're really able to do what I'm asking. That's what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus concluded this teaching by suggesting that no one would be invited to follow him who intended to keep their possessions. We hear that through Isaiah's language. What he means to say is no one would be invited to follow him who intended to keep the government of their possessions. That's metaphorical, right? Metaphorical is where all of us hide from Jesus. <laughs> That's what I've discovered. <laughs> That's metaphorical, right? Well, no, not really. Upon following Jesus, all authority rests on his shoulders, and that includes all of our actual material possessions. All the things in earth that matter to us must come to belong to him. He must be allowed to govern them. Jesus becomes responsible for the government of our earthly possessions, of our parents, of our spouses, of our children, and even of our very lives. No one who wants to govern these things themselves is invited to follow Jesus. That's what he says to his disciples. In the words of Isaiah, the government will rest on not our shoulders with him, but his shoulders. Well, that's a pretty extreme commitment, <laughs> wouldn't you say? If anybody on earth asked for that, you'd... You'd question their intentions. Why would anyone swear such absolute allegiance to a leader, even a leader the likes of Jesus? Well, Isaiah continued by explaining who this leader would be. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. First, Isaiah said that he would be called Wonderful Counselor. More literally in Hebrew, this king, this leader, this Messiah, this Christ, 
would be an extraordinary advisor. To say it another way, this prophesied ruler would be remarkably wise. Many kings in the ancient world surrounded themselves with counselors and advisors to help them make decisions. Leaders still do it today. But very few kings were considered wonderful counselors themselves. Among the kings of Israel, only Solomon came close to being that being said of him. And according to scripture, his wisdom was not from himself or something he earned, but it was a gift of God. But Jesus was more than simply a human man gifted with wisdom by God. Jesus is the wisdom of God himself in the flesh. The Apostle Paul described the work of God in Jesus in the following way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 to 31. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, due to God, who became to us wisdom from God. Do you hear that? Who became to us wisdom from men, wisdom from science, wisdom from history, wisdom from tradition. Is that what your Bible says? Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or in the words of Isaiah, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Why would anyone swear absolute allegiance to Jesus, forsaking all other loyalties and sacrificing all autonomy and self-rule to him? Why would anyone do that? Well, first, because Jesus is the wisdom of the God of all creation in the flesh. Of course, you have to read his teachings and see if you agree. But that is what the scriptures say. There is no being in all of creation who exceeds him in wisdom. He is an extraordinary advisor. Isaiah continued with the phrase, mighty God. This one might be fun for some of you who like new ideas and terrifying for those who don't, but this is it. Literally in the Hebrew, the phrase is the great El, the great El. And El, or the plural form Elohim, is the Hebrew word for God. So the translation mighty God is a good one, but it implies more than it might first appear. In the First Testament, there is only one creator God who is the source of all that is. And his name is not God. God is more of a title or a category of being. His name is Yahweh, right? I am who I am. So the word El or Elohim is sometimes translated into English when it's talking about this one God with a capital G, right? Capital G God. But it's also sometimes translated into English. You've seen it in the Bible with a little g, God's. Right? You've seen that? That's still the word Elohim. And that's because El or Elohim refers to spiritual beings generally. All spiritual beings are Elohim. But there's only one, Yahweh. In the First Testament, there's only one creator God who created all things in heaven and on earth. His name is Yahweh. And he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who became flesh in the person of Jesus. But this one God, according to scripture, did not create only material things and only material beings like you and me. This one God also created spiritual beings as well who work with him to superintend the earth. We often call them angels or demons and other such things today. But in the First Testament, they were just as commonly called Elohim or El. When Isaiah said that the coming king would be the greatest El, or the greatest Elohim, he was prophesying that the coming king would be greater not only than human rulers, 
but greater than all spiritual rulers and powers as well. In his epistle to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has described this truth about Jesus in the following way. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his, God's might, which he brought about in Christ, Jesus, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, these are the spiritual realm, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Everything subjected under his feet. And you might say, well, what does that include? Is that just human nations? No, Paul will, conclude, will say that this brings under Jesus' subjection a whole series of powers that he describes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, this way. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, material rulers, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, against the spiritual authorities. These forces were called El, or Elohim, in the First Testament. Why would anyone swear absolute allegiance to Jesus, forsaking all other loyalties and sacrificing all autonomy and self-rule to him? Well, first, because there's no being in all of creation who exceeds Jesus in wisdom. Second, because he has been given authority not only over human kingdoms and over material reality, but he's enthroned above all heavenly authority as well. In other words, he has no rival nor does he have an equal. Isaiah continues his prophecy with the phrase eternal father. And this is such an interesting and perplexing phrase. It occurs only here in the First Testament. You find it nowhere else. But the implication is straightforward. This individual will inhabit the role of father forever. So the title of father has a number of possible connotations. In general, the father was the head of the household in ancient Israel. So sometimes the word could be used metaphorically for a leader or a ruler. It could also mean like a progenitor or an originator, like Father Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. It could be used that way. My sense in this passage is that this king, who we now know to be Jesus, would be the head of a household that would go on forever, that would never end. My sense is that eternal father is meant to say that the kingdom this king rules will be an eternal kingdom. Kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of Jesus stands forever. Jesus made this claim himself in the gospel according to John during a conversation with a woman named Martha on the occasion of the death of her brother Lazarus. This is John 11, 25 to 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The promise of eternal life that we see in the New Testament is not simply a promise that anyone who asks will be granted eternal life by Jesus. That's not what the scriptures say. The promise is akin to that of Isaiah's phrase, eternal father. The kingdom over which Jesus rules is an eternal kingdom. Therefore, any who acknowledge him as their rightful ruler and king, that is, who put their faith in him, that's what that means, will enter into a kingdom that never ends. So to say that another way, Jesus has promised eternal life in an eternal kingdom to all who would forsake all other loyalties and claim him alone as their Lord. 
Why would anyone swear absolute allegiance to Jesus, forsaking all other loyalties and sacrificing all autonomy and all self-rule to him? First, because there's no being in all creation that exceeds him in wisdom. Second, because he's been given authority over all authorities, both material and spiritual. And now third, because the kingdom over which he rules is an eternal kingdom, and those who become citizens of it, too, will live in it forever. And finally, Isaiah concluded with the description, Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word translated prince is an ancient one. And it's sometimes used in the Hebrew Bible to describe human leaders or chieftains, and it's at other times used to describe spiritual or angelic leaders, which, if you're interested, you can see its use in that way in Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 through 14. So again, the coming king is presented as a ruler, but this time he's presented as a ruler who brings peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. Dr. Marvin Wilson in his book, Our Father Abraham, Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith, has described a shalom bayit. So this is a great phrase, a shalom bayit, that means a house of peace, or a house characterized by peace. Dr. Wilson has described that in the following way. A shalom bayit is a home marked by the absence of strife. But shalom bayit is far more than a negative concept. It's a it is decisively positive. The Hebrew word shalom is filled with strong and rich imagery. Shalom comes from a verb meaning to be whole, sound, entire, well, complete, perfect. The rabbis often use shalom as a name for God in that he is the sum of perfection. And accordingly, his Messiah is described as sar shalom, prince of peace. Furthermore, the Hebrew Bible often employs the word shalom in the sense of be in friendship, in right relations, in harmony with others. It may also convey the idea of tranquility and freedom from strife, both externally and internally. A home of shalom, therefore, is a healthy home. Strife brings sickness, but shalom is wellness and wholeness. Strife divides, but shalom unites. Jesus taught, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul said that peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Here lies the Christian's key to shalom bayit, a peaceful home. Shalom is supernaturally produced in the life of each believer. The unity of the home and of all God's people is the unity of the Spirit. Why would anyone... Does that sound good? Do you want to live in that place? Well, that's the kingdom of Jesus. Is it worth it? That's the question. Why would anyone swear absolute allegiance to Jesus, forsaking all other loyalties and sacrificing all autonomy and self-rule to Him? Why would I let Him... Tell me how to live my life. Make my decisions for me. Tell me what to deny and what to embrace. Tell me what to give and what to keep. Why would I allow him that authority over me? Why would I allow anyone that authority? Well, first, because there's no being in all creation who exceeds him in wisdom. Second, because he's been given authority over all other authorities, both material and spiritual. Third, because the kingdom over which he rules is an eternal kingdom, and those who become citizens of it, too, will live forevermore. And finally, because the kingdom over which he rules is not one of barbarism or selfishness or endless competition or endless suffering or endless separation of people into classes and social structures and all the other things. His kingdom is a shalom bayit, a kingdom of peace. And to each of us who hears the gospel of Jesus, the request is made, 
Do you prefer the kingdoms of the earth in which you live? Or would you enter into the kingdom of Jesus? The cost is allowing the government to rest on his shoulders alone, of letting him be your only loyalty, of calling yourself nothing on this earth except Christian. And the gift is that we get to be citizens of his kingdom, irrespective of which of the kingdoms of the earth in which we were born. In the words of Joshua, the successor to Moses, in Joshua 24, verses 14 to 16, he puts it slightly differently. It's exactly what I just said, but here are Joshua's words. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And do away with the gods which your fathers served beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But, but if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. So for Joshua, don't think you can have dual citizenship. That's what he's saying, right? Let's make a clear-cut decision. Is Jesus Lord or are there other lords? If you say both, then you, Jesus is not Lord. You might as well be honest. That's what Joshua is saying to them. Let's not go into this land if we're not clear who is Lord. If you're looking for other lords, let's just be honest at the offset. That's what he says. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord alone, he might as well have said, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But Joshua says, and I have myself said, and I think many of you here today have said, and I want to encourage you that you have not said it in vain, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And for those on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, we would add to that statement, and his Messiah, Jesus. Amen.